Happy Wednesday again. Uh, also, according to the internet, it's National Lima Bean Respect Day. So I want to wish you a happy that as well. Um, happy Senior Testimonies Day Part 2. This is the last one. Um, and we're going to hear from Bean Hunter today. Um, also, like last week, under some of your seats, there are gummy bears and pretzels. Uh, like Bernie Sanders, I want to encourage you to share with your neighbor. <clears throat> All right, first we're going to hear from B. B is a Bible major from Dalton, Georgia. She plays the Dobro and the Kazoo and describes herself on Instagram as a quote, language enthusiast. That's cool. B is able to stand before us today because she has survived her senior year solely on homemade biscuits in the shape of Martin Luther's head. She is dedicated, committed to friendships and to her work. She is also thoughtful and hilarious, the combination of which is most clearly seen in her practice of praying for the salvation of celebrities, in particular John Mayer. <laughs> B is currently Chaplain Lowe's neighbor, and she woke up the other day to President Halverson and his son Banks mowing her lawn. She plans to attend Gordon-Conwell in the fall to pursue her Master's in Divinity. Welcome, B. Am I on? There we go. I don't really know who let me get up here. I'm not like totally convinced I don't have the gift of spiritual embarrassment. So if I say something I shouldn't, you can blame my classmates who voted for me. But um, in all honesty, it's such a huge honor to be here. I'm so thankful to be able to speak to all of you. I, um, as I was on my way over here, accidentally dropped my first copy of my manuscript in the toilet. And I really hope that's not like a, a metaphor for how today's going to go. So. <laughs> I've never had the chance to speak in front of so many people before, and I'm hoping I do this right. When I was prepping, I was thinking back over successful presentations I had given, because there have been a lot of ones that have bombed. And so I was trying to think of what had made those presentations successful and how I could incorporate that into today. For example, last semester um, in contemporary culture outreach, we talked um, with Dr. Ward how a great speech begins with an illustration. I was assigned to give a presentation on what it means to be someone's neighbor. I spent a solid week trying to come up with a good illustration, and at last, out of frustration and exasperation, I did what all good seniors do, broke with all wisdom, and Googled neighbor. <laughs> and that actually turned out to be one of the greatest things I've done because it gave me um, tips and illustrations on everything from how to ask out your neighbor without even knowing their name to Mr. Rogers' Won't You Be My Neighbor song that is near and dear to my heart. I think I actually made Dr. Ward cry, and not in a good way. <laughs> so, uh, uh, also, last semester, I gave a presentation in Dr. Jones' Psalms class on Psalm 19. And um, in this particular psalm, the author is describing this son as a warrior who sets out to run his race around the sun, around the earth, excuse me. And so naturally, my mind jumps to Eric Liddell, the famous Olympic runner. And so I had the theme song of Chariots of Fire playing behind me as I gave the presentation. And it, I would highly suggest that if you need to feel epic and something you're doing that's mediocre. So um, all this to say, I don't have an illustration to begin with today, unless you just count the two examples I gave you. Um, I don't have the humor of Ema, as you saw last week, or the ADD of Daniel Lloyd. So um, <laughs> maybe we should start with a prayer. So would you join me? Father, I thank you for the good gifts that you give. That you've given me the gift of four years on this mountain. That you sustain and uphold me. That all the fitness you require of me is to feel my need for you. 
I pray that you help me to be faithful with all that you've entrusted me. I ask that you fill me with your love in this moment so that I may pour it out on these people that I love. I ask for your spirit to guide my words, and I pray that you would be glorified through me. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jonathan gave you some background on who I am. It was all true, sadly. Um, But for those of you who don't know me very well, I'd like to fill you in a little bit more. So um, for my first three years of Covenant, I lived on 3rd Central. Changed my life. Um, I love coffee. I'm committed, not addicted. There is a difference. Um, I play the dobro, like Jonathan said. It's this guitar that looks like it has a weird hubcap on it. And um, I absolutely love school and learning. So naturally, I've spent most of my time in the library over the past four years. And um, I I spent so much time in the library, one, because um, I do all my best studying there, but two, I realize that if you stay there long enough, people think you don't get out to eat, so they start bringing you free food. And um, I I also just, I really love to study the Bible. Um, I think that God's Word is His primary way of revealing Himself to us. And um, ever since I began my walk with the Lord in high school, I've been just fascinated with the Scriptures. And that's actually how I decided to come to Covenant. I wanted to keep studying the Bible, and Covenant was nearby, so I chose to take my studies further here. And I'm I'm actually somewhat of an ecumenical movement, I would call it. I grew up in Southern Baptist and um, Evangelical Methodist churches, and I'm finishing four years of biblical and theological studies at the PCA's College in America. Go Scots. And the Reformed tradition has just really become um, very near and dear to my heart. It's very much shaped my beliefs vastly. But at the time I came to Covenant, I only knew about three things about the Reformed faith. One, John Calvin and Tulip. I didn't actually know Tulip, that it stood for anything. I sadly just thought that John Calvin had a nice garden. Um, (laughs) Number two, predestination. And three, this is the most important one, Britney Spears is an anagram for Presbyterians. Yes. And if you don't know what an anagram is, you should look that up. You'll thank me later. Um, I'm also a perfectionist and a workaholic an overachiever. I'd like to state sort of as a disclaimer here that when I say perfectionist, I don't in any way mean that I successfully obliterate all challenges in life. That almost never happens. Uh, What I mean is a refusal to accept anything less than perfection. I have very high standards for myself, and I try with every ounce of my own strength to meet those usually impossible standards. When I don't meet them, I'm very hard on myself, and this fear of not measuring up usually and most of the time leads to an unhealthy amount of stress. So my junior year of college, Uh, I started having a lot of health issues. Some were minor, some were serious, Um, but nonetheless, I wasn't well for a whole year. Uh, I had countless doctor's appointments where I was never given a specific diagnosis for what was eating away at my health. But during what seems like my 10,000th doctor visit, um, my doctor told me that my back was reacting as if I had been in a car accident, my neck was like a cement block, the vertigo, headaches, and nausea I was experiencing were contributing to my loss of appetite and exhaustion, and the constant fevers were all a result of the same thing mismanaged stress. And um, my doctor's a believer, which is great, but also terrible, because he gave me a subtle slap in the face, come to Jesus sermon about how our physical health can be tied to our spiritual sin. Yes, my doctor was diagnosing my poor health and calling me out of my sin. A two-for-one deal. How wonderful. Church at the hospital. How inventive. I already felt like I was dying, and then he ever so politely helped me to see that I was a wretched control freak whose refusal to let God have control of my situations had given me tonsil stones. What exactly do I mean by saying that spiritual sin was affecting my physical health? You see, because I struggle with finding my identity in the things that I do, I let the fear of failure and the belief that everything rests on my A-plus performance cripple my body. Like I said, I'm a control freak. I let stress rule my life and my emotions because it motivated me to get things done. And when I got things done, I could be proud of myself. And if I could feel proud of myself, God would love me. 
My family would love me. My professors would love me. There are so many flat-out lies in this habit of thinking, I am not what I do. I'm not what I do, and I'm still learning that. Um, if I believe that I am what I do, then when I fail at what I do, I'll think I'm a failure. And the Lord has been letting me fail at a lot of what I do in the past year to show me that I was not made to live a life marked by accomplishment, but a life marked by measureless grace. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, We are not trying to please people, read professors, parents, classmates, but God who tests our hearts. So if we're not in this thing to please anyone but God, how then do we balance the responsibility of classes and studying and homework and jobs and relationships and Christian community and the 1,000 other things that are constantly vying for our attention every day? How do we be faithful with all that God has placed before us, laboring with all of his energy, as Colossians 1 says, and simultaneously fight the gut reaction to believe that the success of all these things rests on our weak shoulders? When all we can see or think about is the mountain of homework and the endless list of extracurricular commitments, how do we combat finding our identity in academics? How do we let our work be produced by faith, our labor prompted by love, and our endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as First Thessalonians 1 put it? First, we must start by viewing ourselves as God does. If I operate under the assumption that I'm only lovable or loved when I have it all together, I am living a lie. If I can't believe that my creator loved me before I was even knit together in my mother's womb, before I could do a single thing to earn his approval, I will never love myself. And I will never love anyone else either because when I'm not good enough, no one is. I can't give what I don't have. I can't love others if I can't love myself and view myself as God sees me. So if you thought at this time that I was going to hop off the stage without going into a short um, word study in the Greek or Hebrew, you were wrong. And um, I'll keep it short since this could be painful for some people. But um, in Matthew 3, where John is baptizing Jesus, God says of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the word here that's translated well pleased comes from the Greek word eudiko, which is in the present tense. And in the Greek verb in a present tense typically communicates an action that is repeated or continuous and especially here, timeless. In other words, God has always been and always will be pleased with his son. And he's always been and always will be pleased with you and with me. This is who I am. This is my identity. I am one loved by God and this love is not based on my performance and I cannot do anything to change that. The second way we combat finding our identity in what we do is the thing that, for me, sounds overly simplistic, but is nearly impossible to go through with. Dropping the work, honoring the Sabbath, and spending time with others. When I think Sabbath, I think burden of all burdens, which is ridiculous because it's intended to be the total opposite. However, I want to use every second checking things off my to-do list because I want to be brave and do all the things and conquer the world one smiley face at the top of an Ace McDougal quiz at a time. I live for those. But sometimes the bravest thing that you can do is the thing that causes you to humble yourself the most. Like taking a Sabbath and trusting that God can handle all the crap that you have to get done for the coming week because you're honoring him in your rest and because he is able to work in what little time you have left afterwards. There have been days when I've been fighting the rest that is necessary for my sanity and I've had to say, Lord, if I take a break right now, there is no way that I will get done all of these things unless you show up. And I think he likes that because it's almost like it's a challenge to him. He has never answered that prayer. And I'm not saying that you should think you can trick God into answering your prayers by saying, it's not going to happen unless you do it. But I am saying that God works in the impossible, and I think that he likes to do that. I tend to think that the busier I am serving Christ and being faithful with all that he's called me to do, the more mature and holy I am. 
But maturity doesn't happen when you're out running around finishing assignments left and right. It happens when you rest. If we take time, if we don't take time to let Christ refresh us and remind us that our identity lies in being his beloved, it can manifest in anger. And for me, 99% of the time, that anger or hatred is inwardly focused. But here's the thing about self-loathing, which I think is so interesting. It's just another form of self-absorption, which is just another form of pride. It's still being full of yourself and being healed or emptied of that pride and self-hatred and reorienting my thoughts about myself to align with how God thinks of me takes time. And it can't just happen every few months when we come up on a school break. It has to happen once a week. Maturity isn't keeping busy and stuffing my sin down. Maturity is taking time to rest in Christ and learning to let him love me so that I can love others. Um, if you also thought that I was going to get up here and not quote at least one of the Bible professors, you were sorely mistaken because I'm going to quote three of them. <laughs> While they are, in fact, the fire that fuels my struggle with work because they are the ones assigning all of that work, they are also the biggest encouragers and reminders that I am not what I do and that rest is so important. I, I think that I'm the reject of the Bible department, honestly, because this is my last semester at Covenant, and I am a Bible major, and I'm just now getting to have one of Dr. Capic's classes. Nonetheless, he has taught me, and I quote, the goal is not precision, it's faithfulness. While I may or may not fail at what I'm trying to accomplish, all that I can do is my best. That's why my mom always says to me. And I, I have to be faithful in my work ethic, but I also have to be faithful in my limits. It's not a sin to be finite. And it's not a sin to take a break once a week. Dr. Jones has taught me that sleep is an act of faith. Psalm 104.19 says that even the sun knows when to go down. And I'm not going to let a burning ball of fire beat me at life. So I will make sleep a priority, if at all possible. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and lastly, I'll never forget uh, the day that I was close to tears in Dr. McDougall's office, which happens more often than not. And because while with my whole nerd heart, I love the Greek language, it's very difficult, and I have never put so much work into something and not gotten the exact results and payoff that I wanted and expected. So I'm talking to Dr. McDougall about my Greek woes, and with every ounce of Canadian compassion in his heart, he just looks at me in the eyes and simply says, B, there is something to be said for persistence. I still struggle with not finding my identity in what I do and taking time to rest and trusting God, and maybe I will struggle with that for all of my life, but I will be danged if I don't keep trying to figure this thing out, if I don't keep striving to love myself even when I feel that I've failed, and if I don't put down the homework and say, Lord, I've had all week, this day is yours. That's the lesson that Covenant College has been teaching me for four years, and I hope that I can encourage you if you struggle with something similar, just to be persistent and to keep on keeping on in whatever God has put before you, because he loves you, and that will never change no matter what you do or how you feel about yourself. I love you all, and I'm so thankful to get to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you, B. That was wonderful. One of my first memories of Hunter is studying for a PE-151 test freshman year. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I beat him on that test, and I'm pretty sure I haven't beat him on a test since. <laughs> Hunter is a master of puns and a masterful poet. He is a cross-country runner, and all analog to the Christian life apply. Hunter is a fighter, wrestling with sin and chasing God. He is committed to God and God's church, and he is one of my best friends. Hunter leads in vulnerability, and that vulnerability has changed my life. Hunter is intelligent, kind, and I regard him as one of the bravest people I know. One day, he is going to be a kick and Bible translator, but in the meantime, it is my hope that he'll be in Chattanooga for a year or so, 
spreading his grace in whatever situation he finds himself. Hunter. Um, I want to start with a quick announcement that next week at, on Wednesday in the library lounge there's going to be a presentation for all the Bible sips and the top three Bibles that's going to present and you don't want to miss it. Um, now I'm going to pray. Um, Lord, uh, thank you for remaining faithful to us. Thank you for remaining with us at all times. I pray that in this time when really our entire campus is full of stress and anxiety, that you would protect us from sin and from dysfunction, um, that you would help us to turn to you in prayer and, and rely on you to be our strength. Thank you for, be, um, for sharing that message with us, which is extremely timely. I pray that we would ha have hearts that listen to it. Um, I thank you for this opportunity to share today. Um, I know that entire stories can't just be boiled down to some kind of takeaway or a moral or a spiritual truth, and that's why you give us communion instead of just telling us about your gospel so that we can eat it and taste your goodness. Um, so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak today um, in spite of myself and help us taste your goodness. I pray, Lord, that as I speak today, people would hear what you're calling them to and that you would give them faith to follow you in that call. Amen. I'm going to start in Isaiah 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, Yahweh of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now... Your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Yes. Go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, and they will not hear with their ears nor will their hearts understand so that they might turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, what the heck? <laughs> Do you want to run that by me again? Do you want me to go speak to a people that won't listen? Preach to a people who won't understand? What is this calling? Why are you giving me over to such futility? Let me start over. It was when Jesus died that I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up like a gleaming snake in the wilderness that Moses made so that anyone who looked up would be healed and saved from death. No, he was like a lamb that had been slain, and around him were the angels and the elders and the creatures. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And I was shaken and trembling and felt like I was full of fire. And I said, It's all over. 
I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man, yet I've seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus pulled me close and said, now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, all right, I'm sending you broken. Hunter, you're going to struggle with same-sex attraction, but I want you to say no to those desires. I'm not going to take them away, but I want you to say no, to take up your cross and follow me. And I said, Lord, for how long? And he said, as long as you must. I said, why me? Why should I be in bondage to desires that I don't want? Why should I have to say goodbye to my closest friend because he's going to be married to the woman he calls his best friend? Why am I lonely and afflicted? Because callings don't always seem as glorious as that first Christian mind lecture makes them seem. As a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, I'm painfully aware of my calling towards singleness and celibacy. I'm thankful for a strong, independent black woman who don't need no man, Ema, <laughs> for her words about singleness last week, but I wish we could have heard them sooner and more often. I'll confess that I've had a growingly bitter heart towards romance this year. I hate seeing anxiety eat up my friends who think that ring by spring is a graduation requirement, that the marriage mill on the hill will turn them out as dysfunctional products, that these happy hunting grounds will leave them starving. I really hate constantly hearing about my friends' romantic escapades and relationship issues as if they were the first and only ones to experience communication breakdown between men and women. <laughs> I hate going home to people who ask if I found anyone special yet, and some express deep concern when I sheepishly say no because I just don't want to explain it all to them. I hate the assumption that I've explicitly heard from one pastor's mouth that each one of us is incomplete without a spouse because the image of God is only fulfilled in marriage. I hate that I can't hang out or make dinner with my friend Ruthie without everyone passing our friendship with their pervasively romantic imaginations. But I would say mostly I hate that I can't have a spouse of my own because I so often fall for the idolatry of marriage too. Since my junior year of high school, I've pursued another calling that God has given me towards Bible translation, and I wouldn't be honoring the platform I've been given today if I didn't at least mention the need for Bible translation. God has broken my heart over the state of things. Of the 7,000 languages or so in the world, only about 500 languages have an entire Bible, and several thousand have no scripture at all. We might not consider it when we gladly choose to leave the word of God unread, but this word is life, and there are hundreds of millions that don't have the privilege of taking this word of life for themselves. More than this, there are 6,800 unreached people groups in the world, which means that among half the world's peoples, there's no established local church, and less than 2% of the population are Christians. And of these, 3,100 are unengaged people groups, which means that in addition to being unreached, there's no plan on anyone's part to do evangelism and church planning among these people. So there are one billion people in the world today who don't have anyone in their lives to bring the gospel to them, and no one is planning to. Doesn't that break your heart that in 2,000 years there are still so many that are unreached? How can we remain content with ourselves? This is why the Lord calls, Whom shall I send? And he doesn't want people who feel guilty for the way th things are, but people who have tasted and seen that he is good and will show others. There's a prayer group that meets here on Tuesday nights to pray regularly for God to raise up laborers from covenant to go and reap his harvest in the world. I felt my own calling to go, but I received it with some trepidation because of my calling to singleness. I think often about going to the mission field alone, 
when I ought to be encouraging my friends to be the best boyfriends or girlfriends, husbands or wives that they can be, I often grow bitter instead toward them and towards God. Because I just want the satisfaction, security, and pleasure that's found in marriage. <clears throat> to be honest, a lot of me wants that to be filled in union with another man. But underneath all this, I don't find a just complaint against God. Um, instead, I find another idol that I've fallen for, along with the rest of our culture. Underneath, I find the idolatry of pleasure, the assumption that we are only meant to live in a constant state of painless bliss. This idol would love to turn our eyes away from Jesus, whom we seek to follow, the way that the serpent turned Eve's eyes away from God's provision and presence. When we look on our Messiah, we see a man who had no reason to be in our painful world. We see a man who looked on all our evil and pain and sorrow and immense depression and decided to take this agony for himself. He laid aside his rights to live away from all of this and instead took the cross for us. Forget about notions of suffering in order to pay Jesus back. Our suffering is a part of the fabric of reality. I mean, that if we're the disciples of Jesus, we will follow in his footsteps. If he is the way to the place that he is going, like he said, if he is the way to the Father and to home, then we have to be with him, doing the things he did, and only in this way will we find life. In the face of suffering, in the face of saying no to our desires and laying aside our rights, it really comes down to a question of trust. When I'm tempted to forsake biblical teaching on homosexuality, I'm confronted with the reality of God's laws and God's ways. Psalm 19 says that they are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. They're a warning against the ways that lead to death and a reward in showing me how to live, how to be human. But while the Christian call is a definite call to suffering, and we must absolutely crush the idol of pleasure that will only be satisfied when we're in the grave, I don't want to leave the impression that our calling to singleness is a call to greater suffering than the call to marriage. In fact, we shouldn't think about singleness um, as a calling given only to those who don't make the cut for marriage. Nor should we see it as only for those holier saints that can handle it. The calling to singleness is equal to the call to marriage. The calling to singleness is equal to the call to marriage. And humans are equally capable of being called to singleness as they are to marriage. Neither one is a mark of greater spiritual maturity. Neither one provides more fullness as a human being. In Christ, we see the man who tore through the darkness to claim his bride, but we shouldn't get hung up on this one image of God. If we want to look at the way that we are made in the image of God, we look to the triune God. He is three persons in eternal community, not just a husband and wife. Although he does call some to marriage, God calls everyone to friendship. And this is what it means to be human, to be in friendship with God and in friendship with others. Singleness in this sense is a deceptive term because nobody's called to stand single, nobody's called to stand alone. It's not even that only husbands and wives are called to be bound to other people. Friendship is a call to bind ourselves to others in self-sacrificial love, and in this love we find life. So there's definite hope for those who are called to celibacy, to thrive. But I still live in an environment where the serpent turns my eyes away from all the companions he's given me to look at and obsess over the one thing that I can't have. So what continues to motivate me to follow my call? To say no to those same-sex desires for, and ask for more than what God allows? What motivates me to keep going and suffering instead of giving up my faith or giving up my life? Isaiah volunteered eagerly to go into God's service before he knew what he was getting himself into. When he learned what a difficult calling he was receiving, he asked with trembling, how long will this go on, Lord? 
and would go on until his people and his city were destroyed. So why did Isaiah continue? What motivated him? He had seen the glory of the Lord, and he had literally tasted the goodness of the Lord in his forgiveness as the burning coal touched his lips. What makes this calling worth it? Friendship with Jesus is the glory that makes this calling to take up my cross worth it. When my heart is grieved and my spirit's embittered and I'm ready to just throw this cross off my back, I look up and look ahead to the one in front of me. Sometimes when I look at the cross, I consider my perverted desires and the sin that so easily entangles me. I look up to see my friend Jesus there and I imagine him saying, look at what you've done. You did this to me. And my guilt and shame are like a force pressing on me from within and from without. But that's not what Jesus is saying on the cross. Where he, as he hangs there on the cross where he went holding our hearts, he says, look at what I've done. Look, I did this for you. And sometimes when I take communion, I consider what's really going on. My friend is offering himself to me to eat because only by eating his body and drinking his blood can I live. And I say, how can I take your life, my friend? How can I eat the body and drink the blood of my friend? But he responds, no, Hunter, it's not you taking. It's me giving. I'm giving myself to you because I love you, my friend. That's the glory that keeps me going. That's the glory of the faithful friend. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for staying with us as a faithful friend. Thank you for this promise that you give to each one of us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You'll never leave us in the cold. Thank you for making provision and promises to the people that you call to singleness and to celibacy. You tell them not to complain that we're only dried trees with no children and no future. But to the, those eunuchs, those celibates who hold fast to your covenant, you will give within your temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will never disappear. And that those who give up home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children feels for you and the gospel will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, God. Because you're just so good to us. Um, I pray again, Lord, that you would help us discern what call you have for us. I pray that you would continually raise up many more from here to go to, into your fields where the harvest is ready. Um, I pray that you would call people to do that, whether you're calling them to marriage or to singleness. And I ask you earnestly, God, to help us fight cynicism, fight envy of other people's callings, and help us embrace our own, help us encourage each other in our callings. We need your help, Spirit, to do this. And we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you.